Welcome to Inside Divorce, a series of podcasts on divorce-related topics. But if it comes to parenting, that's not what the courts are designed for. So we have this class, and it's a combination of psychoeducation when we talk about the impact of conflict on child development, a lot of perspective taking about really trying to understand the experience of their kids to their kids' eyes, a tremendous amount of conflict resolution skill development, and we as instructors report back to the court. This is Cynthia Ockley Barbuto. I am a senior associate with Grossman & Associates, and welcome to the podcast series Inside Divorce. I am here with Ben Stitch, who is a family and divorce mediator in Natick. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to have you here. I'm going to just go through some of your, your bio here and let everybody know who you are. Uh, you've been a family and divorce mediator in Natick since 2009 focuses on all types of family mediation, including separation and divorce, co-parenting, modifications, decision-making, communication, marital issues, elder issues like estate planning disputes and end-of-life decision-making, and conflict between parents and their teenage adult children. Another thing that you go to talk about is that you're an instructor for the state's only court-mandated high-conflict education program at William James College, which is known as CAFES, right? That, well, that's the, yeah, the little department within the college, just down the street from your office. Right, yeah. <laughs> I've seen it a number of times go by there. So Ben, before mediating, you ran treatment programs for adolescents <laughs> for about eight years, and uh, you were a social worker for about six, and you are currently working part-time for MGH's Department of Psychiatry for Think Kids, where you teach collaborative problem solving, all right? That's right. What exactly is that? Yeah, so collaborative problem solving, or CPS for short, is an approach that was developed at Mass General to help any type of adult parent, clinician, teacher, work with kids with real challenging behavior. And there's a lot of alignment between CPS and mediation. Okay. All right. Sounds fantastic. And you live in Natick with your wife, 10-year-old son, and your dog, Rolo. Yep. And I love it. black and brown. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get going, I would also like to mention that um, you have a website, www.benstitchstich.com. Yes. Okay. And I went through your website, and it is a a wealth of information. I noticed that you've got a lot of blogs there. What kinds of topics do you cover for somebody to take a look at? Yeah. Well, thanks for looking through it. Um, I try to make my blog a, a little different than the typical kind of series that you'd find on a mediator's website. It's really focused on communication and conflict resolution, but often inspired by real experiences or situations that have occurred in mediations okay. that I that I facilitate. So I use these little vignettes as anecdotes to kind of illustrate a point and try to make them short and but entertaining rather than just kind of a dry didactic, you know, content about child support guidelines. Sure. Okay. All right. So hopefully it, to help <laughs> to help folks in any types of relationship, not just people going through divorce. All right. So I would encourage uh, our listeners to go to Ben's website and take a look at the blogs and, and check out the information that's there. I also saw that you have, uh, you do trainings and workshops and you'll be doing some workshops for the National Association of Social Workers this April. Yeah. Every other year, uh, the Massachusetts chapter of NASW has a, a, a conference and I'm actually doing two workshops for them this year. One is on divorce mediation and why social workers should know about divorce mediation. It's kind of like a divorce mediation 101. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other workshop is on how mediation can help co-parenting disputes and help you know help lead to kind of better upbringings for their kids. Okay, that's fantastic. So tell me, in your words, what is mediation? 
Um, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, mediation is, is basically a process where you have an impartial third party who structures a conversation that allows both parties to be heard and understood that is very much focused on the present and the future, not so much on the past, and where one of the goals is really to help all parties understand each other's interests, which is kind of their hopes and goals and dreams or fears, which may or may not be the same as their rights, and hopefully work towards generating solutions that address uh, as many of their respective interests as possible. You know, in you know, in a traditional mediation, non-family oriented, people talk about mediation being a win-win. I think sometimes that's a tough sell in divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, but at a minimum, I think uh, in mediation, the goal is hopefully to come to an agreement that everyone can live with at a minimum and that everyone's really happy with and feels meets all their needs ideally. It's also a confidential process. Yes. Um, so hopefully that creates an environment where parties feel comfortable thinking out loud, changing their mind. They don't have to uh, negotiate as if there's an attorney looking over their shoulder who could use something they're saying against them in court. Uh, the mediator can never be called to testify on behalf of either party. And the parties, both the parties and the mediator have to sign a confidentiality agreement before it even begins, right? Yeah, so the agreement to participate does talk about confidentiality. I mean, in theory, the parties, there's no enforceable way for parties sure. to maintain confidentiality, but there is for the for the mediator. And there's statutes in Massachusetts that protect the mediator right. um, from having to be called to testify. I've found that a lot of clients and parties feel they need to be amicable to mediate. But I know that from reviewing your website and a lot of the type of work you do, you deal with some very, very high conflict situations. So how effective is mediation for people in in high, high conflict situations? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, certainly if, if when folks are amicable, mediation is easier, right? But the bottom line is mediation is a voluntary process. So even if there's a high conflict dynamic, if both parties or even if it's a multi-party mediation, if everyone has the goal of trying to resolve things through direct negotiation and outside the court, there's investment in the process. So I think there's a myth out there that mediation is only designed for folks who are cooperative. Mediation actually is a conflict resolution model. It's designed to help resolve conflicts um, inherently. Uh, And there are lots of kind of tools and tricks and processes that can help couples who are higher conflict. And certainly it makes it more challenging and and there are some other kind of nuances to it. Mediation isn't for everyone, right? I think I'd be kidding myself if I thought that every single divorce can and should be mediated. But there are many high conflict relationships that are able to get mediated if you have two parties who are invested in wanting the process to work, and a mediator who's skilled enough to be able to manage the dynamics. Okay, okay. When you're determining your style, do you take a more aggressive style when it's necessary? And can you flip between the more facilitative and evaluative approaches? And Yeah, so when style, what you're talking about is that there's different styles of mediation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the traditional style that I typically practice is interest-based facilitative mediation, which is really you're, you're, you're very purely non-evaluative. You know, even if you're valued, you're not taking sides, but in facilitative mediation, it's purely impartial. Uh, and then there's evaluative mediation where you might kind of more strongly influence the way people think about things or let people know what the impact of their decisions might be. And I'd say there's a continuum, there's a ladder. And I'd say I, I, I'm not purely one or the other. I think my baseline is to start and 
a purely facilitative way, but there are cases where a slightly more evaluative approach is called for or what the parties want. And one of the things I pride myself in is being a really flexible mediator Mm -hmm. in all parts of my approach, both whether it's evaluative or facilitative or, uh, you know, the way the meetings get structured, uh, the length of the mediation, the process, so on and so forth. Uh, So, you know, I guess your question about how do you assess at the beginning uh, what approach you take? I think the, the first thing I do is if I'm able to determine that it's a high conflict dynamic, um, I will typically recommend uh, private pre-mediation sessions before we ever meet jointly. And the reason I do that is so that each party can share whatever context they want me to know without having to do it in front of the other person. Because otherwise, rehashing the past, they're going to have different narratives. They have different stories. And they're not going to convince each other of each other's way of thinking. If they had, they wouldn't right. be a mediation for divorce. Uh, so uh, it allows them to give me the information they feel I need without doing it in a way that's going to be so inflammatory that it could undermine the process before it even begins. It also allows me to help them think through what their goals are, help them get future-oriented, help them think through what their own hot buttons are that the other party might do and how we can think through that and how I can be helpful to them. And also to do a little bit of perspective-taking and think about what are the things that they do that are hot-button for the other person. Right. Right. And and are, are there things that they should think about strategically you know, in the spirit of trying to come to resolution. Okay. Uh, so what the, what I usually say to folks is it's a little bit more upfront time and expense, but it will probably save you a tremendous amount of time and expense in the long run because it will allow us to start on a much better footing. Um, and it's funny, when I explain that to people on the phone, they, to a T, they say, oh, you know what, that makes so much sense because if I tell you what I think in front of her or in front of him, it's going to be game on and <laughs> yes absolutely uh, so but if there are if if through my screening i feel that you know we can start immediately with joint sessions even if there's a moderate level of conflict you know then we'll do that because that will save the clients time and money so it's you know that's that's one approach i take based off of whatever my initial assessment is okay and if you as you're going through this approach i i imagine that you can probably fairly quickly determine if you're dealing with an abusive situation or you're dealing with a situation where one party is just quite clearly more dominant than the other and uh, to get ready to adapt your process. Uh, is mediation still viable in those situations? Yeah, good question. Well, you know, understanding the power dynamics and how to balance an imbalance dynamic uh, is a really important role of the mediator. Now, I may not ever know if there was abuse in the past, if it doesn't come up. Really, all I know about is the way they're presenting in the moment and whether or not I believe that both parties have uh, the voice that they should have and that they're making informed decisions without it being under duress. So there are lots of ways of thinking about how to uh, make sure there's not a, a power imbalance. You know, sometimes for one party, the mediator might be more active and might do more summarizing and, and articulating what they're trying to say than the other. We might have private sessions where I might check in with parties and say, you know, you've been really quiet. Tell me what's going on. What is it that you really wish you could say? How can I help you say those things? You know, and sometimes you find out that, you know what, no, I really didn't say anything because I don't really care about <laughs> this particular topic. Uh, and other times it's like, yeah, if I open my mouth, he's going to jump down my throat. And we say, well, let's, let's talk about that. 
Okay. Um, All let's, right. you know, let, let's figure out how I can be helpful. And, you know, in the most extreme circumstances, I've only had several cases like this, but I've had some shuttle mediations where the parties can't even be in the same room together. It takes more time, just inherently going back and forth and trying to speak for other people. That's the most extreme way of trying to mitigate against those kind of control issues. I mean, I've, I've, I have mediated a couple of cases where there've been restraining orders and they're just never in my office at the same time. And maybe we do more phone work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's lots of ways of kind of addressing it. I've had, I've had mediations where people bring someone with them, right? So they bring their attorney with them or they have one mediation where she brought her mom with her and the, and the husband was agreeable to that. And okay. that's, that was like kind of the emotional support she needed to be able to work through the process. And, and mom was a party to the mediation. So when I feel that someone is not making informed decisions, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier, I make a very strong recommendation from my initial consultation all the way through that both parties have counsel. So they can consult with along the way, who can serve as a coach in the background, who can really check in with understanding what their rights are and can run potential solutions by them. doesn't mean you have to follow your attorney's advice, but your attorney is the only person who will maximize your rights and who will understand your rights and he will, who will let you know all the information you need to know in a highly kind of evaluative and skillful way. Now, not everyone follows my recommendations. But in an extreme situation like this, you know, we would talk about, you you know, do you have the right kind of attorney? Do you have a financial planner? Do you have an advocate? Certainly safety comes before anything. So, you know, if they weren't in a safe situation, I wouldn't, mediation wouldn't be appropriate at that time. And if, and if ultimately I believe that mediation isn't appropriate, then I'll refer them out. I'm not going to work with someone if, if, Ultimately, they can't make good informed decisions. It's not going to lead to good outcomes. Some core principles of mediation is, you know, self-determination, but also informed consent. And if despite all my best efforts, those things can't manifest, then that's then that's that's an issue for the mediation process. And so you and you're so you're comfortable too with parties having attorneys present if that's what they. I'm most comfortable with. If that's what they want. And so that's the self-determination piece, right? Right, you know, right. The, the, the ultimate mediator kind of go-to line is, well, it's up to you. <laughs> you know, what do you want to do? Uh, that's, you know, that's that's their decision. We would have to think through what the role of the attorneys are in the room and what their roles are. And, you know, there's some more transparency and some planning. Changes the that dynamic. Needs to occur. Yeah, it changes <laughs> the dynamic. But it, it certainly can take place. I actually have one case years ago where we had both attorneys and then each party, very high conflict divorce, both parties mm-hmm. were in private rooms and me and my co-mediator, this happened to be a co-mediation, were with the two attorneys. And in essence, we were mediating the two attorneys and then oh, going wow. to the parties <laughs> to get their consent about the things that the attorneys were agreeing upon. It had been a very long drawn out divorce process and with the ultimate in a high conflict dynamic, but these parties were convinced they were they were they were determined to settle out of court. So that's what they needed, and they and it worked. They got divorced. That's great. That's great. It was untraditional. <laughs> yeah, definitely a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's let's switch gears a little bit. I also noticed that you handle high conflict co-parenting mediation. Yeah. I think that's a really fascinating service. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that works and if it's been an effective tool for people 
Yeah, I, I love that part of my work. Uh, and I do feel it's been effective for many people. You know, like all mediations, it's voluntary. So both parents have to want to engage in the process. But I would say that, you know, often when I work with parents in this type of situation, it's parents who cannot have conversations, who maybe they've, their only communication has been text messaging for the last several years. They're not in the same room together. The exchanges with the kids are ice cold, you know, dynamics. And when kids are raised in situations where the, the tension and conflict is so palpable, whether it's explicit or just implicit there, it, it's as if the kids are growing up in a toxic environment. And it, 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 there's tremendous impact on their, on their uh, brain development and places them at much higher risk for poor outcomes with school and relationships and behavior and a whole host of other things. So to me, co-parenting mediation is an opportunity with the help of a, a third party for parents to start being able to make some joint decisions and to be able to do it without it having the cost and heartache and pain and, and distress of doing it through a court process. And usually the focus is on finding ways to communicate about the kids in, high, in structured ways that protects against it going off the rails, uh, making some joint decisions. Some of the common topics that come up in a co-parenting mediation are things like you know, decisions about school placement or making decisions about extracurriculars or travel plans. Folks who didn't deal with college planning at the time of their divorce and they kick the can down the road and all of a sudden it's, you know, 18 months away um, and they haven't done any planning. So things like that. And I always have pre-mediation sessions for the co-parenting mediations because there's no way in my experience for them to move forward without understanding what the dynamic is. Um, and it helps me set a really clear agenda. And what I tell folks when I go through co-parenting mediation is I have a wealth of resources and tools and structures and readings that if they want, I can make available to them. Right. I will never impose it on them as a mediator because that would, that would take me out of my kind of role of impartiality. But most people often want tools. And then when that occurs... We mediate how to use those different approaches and how to, you know, what type of communication styles they want to employ. And I find that that's been really effective. And I do have the luxury of being a co-instructor for the High Conflict Parent Education course. So I, I, I readily steal um, <laughs> many of the lessons and tools that we use in our course and modify them to, for it to be relevant in a mediation process. But the, the High Conflict Parent Ed course is really co-parenting boot camp, and it's for the folks who are what we consider the most frequent flyers in the court, where they're constantly, the level of conflict is so high that they need to resort to a judge's decision for for parenting issues. And as the director of our program, who's a retired judge, likes to say, there's no law school class on should the vacation be five days long or seven days long? No, there there's isn't. no law school class yeah. on what's better, hockey or lacrosse, mm -hmm. um, right? And right. those are parenting decisions. Sure. Uh, and, you know, if you have a dispute related to finances, sure, bring it to the judge. Let Judges make really good decisions when it comes to assets and liabilities and child support and alimony. But if it comes to parenting... That's, that's not what the courts are designed for. And so we have this class where we have six co-parenting duos. We call them 
CPPs, co-parenting partners. And it's a combination of psychoeducation when we talk about the impact of conflict on child development, a lot of perspective taking about really trying to understand the experience of their kids to their kids' eyes, a tremendous amount of conflict resolution skill development with lots of homework and approaches that they have to do in between classes and they report back to the entire class. And we as instructors report back to the court on people's success and, and people can pass or fail the course. Do you know if the courts generally have a, I don't know, a penalty for failing the course or anything when they appoint it or is it just we're back in court and here we go? Yeah, it's a great question and one that usually the parents in the class ask. <laughs> uh, you know, So in order to be in the court, there needs to be a court order. Um, yes, and okay. it can be by stipulation. And while there's nothing that's technically enforceable in terms of a punishment, what we do know is if one parent excels in the course and puts their best foot forward and falls through in everything we say, and the other fails miserably, rest assured that the judge is going to account for that when sure. they make future decisions. Because nothing's confidential in this. Right. There's right. no confidentiality. Uh, so the judge, we will, judge will get a rubric with the different standards that we will assess each party on, as well as a written narrative from us at the end of the class. Okay. So can we guarantee that that will lead to certain positive or negative outcomes for each parenting duo? I, no. But does it influence the way that judge is going to think about each party? I would imagine um, it does. It absolutely will. And it certainly can't be helpful if you're the party <laughs> who didn't do well or didn't seem to put a good faith effort into it okay. um, and the other one did. Okay. All right. Oh, that's that's great to know that you report back to the court about the, I mean, the specifics of how each party, yeah. I guess, uh, completed, performed the course because uh, it is important, um, especially in uh, divorce where there is so much he said, she said, it's sometimes it's really hard to break through that logjam yep. and get, get the facts in front of the judge. So having third parties who have been involved in observing each of these parents' processes is, is that feedback is really important and, and uh, helpful. It, it, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And frankly, I mean, it's a really hard class. I give these parents a tremendous amount of credit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for some of them, it might be the hardest thing they'll ever do. I mean, they're basically sitting with this person they detest. Yeah, they have right? to be with they're the They're there parent, together. Right? And all the homework activities are things that they have to do together. They have to have phone conversations each week. We're following in a certain agenda. They have to show up at extracurricular activities together and be able to do it with, you know, sit together at times. You know, there's lots of different activities. And it's not easy. And it's incredibly uncomfortable. And there are some parents who really embrace what we teach and it's transformative and it really is what they need to be able to recognize the parenting is about putting their kids first above the conflict with their former spouse or the other parent if they were never married and and then there are others where for whom it's not transformative but having said that if we didn't have a court order and we weren't reporting back to the court mm -hmm. very few would see the course through because right. week three week four Folks are miserable. Week six, <laughs> week seven, people start feeling positive, more positively about coming to class. But that process has to occur. Mm -hmm. and, and our fear is without the court order, people would just withdraw. Sure, sure. When it got too hard. I know it's, it's $950 a person. I right? think that's the cost. And, I'm um, just the instructor. I don't handle the administrative side. But Do you know if there are payment options for parties who are unable to 
who need it and handled? Have you seen that? Or I do think there have been times that there have been there's been some flexibility. Okay, that's something that's really to talk to um, retired Judge Harms about who runs the program. Okay, I do know that we we would love to find opportunities to get funding for the program to make it more accessible to people. Right. Um, and that's that's a challenge that certainly we, we face. I think it's the it's well worth it. It's it's absolutely well worth well, it. Well, nine hundred fifty dollars is what three hours of an attorney's time. Right. right? Exactly. If you, you know, think about and it, and you're getting from us twenty seven hours of instruction mm-hmm. plus dinner for nine weeks. And oh, you provide food. We do. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And we feel that's actually part of the process. Like there's something about breaking bread together that mm-hmm. that creates a different dynamic. So if you break that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Really inexpensive. I mean, yeah. I get writing a check for $950 is a lot of money for lots of families. But it's certainly less expensive than going to court again. Oh, with it's... Absolutely, absolutely. And well worth it if they can get somewhere that helps the family dynamic improve, helps yeah. the kids yeah. overall. Now, to just to reiterate, the course is right up the street at William James here in Newton? Yep, it's... Uh, I actually drove by it and went the wrong way and did the whole loop getting to your office as opposed to just taking the, the left right there. So yeah, it's part of William James College. They have a whole division that's that's part of like the interplay, you asked about the CAS program, which is really about the interplay bet- between law and psychology. Okay. Um, so they have uh, postdocs who are getting trained as guardian ad litems and uh, Robin Deutsch, Dr. Deutsch is in charge of the program and she does a lot of instruction around developing parent coordinators and uh, all the classes are co-taught by someone with a legal background and someone with a mental health background. And I wanted to ask you, you brought up parent coordinators and I meant to ask you about this. When you were talking about your high conflict mediation that you offer, what is the difference between that and a parent coordinator? That's a great question. And there are significant differences. Okay. Um, the first difference is that uh, mediation is confidential and parent coordination is not. So parent coordinator can be called to testify at any time. A second difference is that a parent coordinator has the authority of the court to make recommendations or decisions. Uh, those decisions can always be appealed, but there's legal authority there. In mediation, you're still functioning as an impartial third party where you're really work, you know, crafting a process that helps them come to resolution on their own rather than imposing solutions. And the third piece is that usually the role of a parent coordinator is pretty narrow and determined by the court order. In a mediation, anything is game for negotiation. So, for example, parents often in mediation renegotiate their parenting plan. A parent coordinator can't change the separation agreement sure. unless there's that explicit Right, order from right. the court that, with whatever their limited scope is, allows them to do that. Um, it's usually about helping parents implement the separation agreement. Okay. Right. So, so there's there's a much greater room for negotiation and flexibility and modification in in the mediation process. Okay. Well, thank you, Ben. I I have really enjoyed talking to you. I I've found um, the information you provided absolutely invaluable. As I'm I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you so much for your interest in mediation. You're always working to get the word out. And I appreciate lawyers who see mediation as something that's uh, complimentary because it is. It is. Um, You know, I recommend to all my clients that they have attorneys. And I think there's sometimes a misunderstanding that it's an alternative to the legal process. I think it's just a a path. Yeah. And there's lots of paths. Absolutely, towards, towards absolutely, divorce. and very valuable to a lot of parties. Very helpful, and it can get a lot of parties to where they need to be. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's. I think it's a, it's a very, very important part of the process. 
So I've been talking with Ben Stitch. Uh, his website is www.benstitch.com. That's B-E-N-S-T-I-C-H. And he works out of Native Mass. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a confident and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindell at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.